welcome to the Convex Conversation with me, broadcaster Helen Fospero. Traditionally, England hasn't been lauded for its wine in the same way as places like France, Spain or California. But over the last decade or so, vineyards in England have been quietly making their mark, helped by warmer temperatures and good quality soil. In just 40 years, the ideal climatic conditions experienced in the Champagne region in France have shifted approximately 275 miles northwest here to southern England, one of the fastest growing wine regions. Today, I'm at Herbert Hall in Kent, a small family-owned estate with a rich heritage, where Herbert's great-grandson Nick produces fine, handmade English sparkling wine, vintage by vintage, with fellow winemaker Kirsty Smith. Their wines have been described by connoisseurs as among the finest available and are sold in places like Fortnum and Mason. And Herbert Hall makes wine for King Charles. Nick, it's uh, fantastic to meet you and have a look round your winery. If it was a few degrees warmer, perhaps I'd think I was in France. It's a bit chilly out there today. But I've been struck by how boutique and small you are. We were in the winemaking, I don't know what you call it, salon a few minutes ago. Uh, in the winery. Yeah, yes. we were in the winery just now. We are really small. We only make about 20,000 bottles a year and we only make sparkling wine. And there are really only two of us, as you say, there's me and there's Kirsty. And together, with the help of a lot of volunteers, we're able to make some good wine. There's a beauty, I think, in a way, in how small and intimate the vineyard looks. When I started, which was, I planted in 2007, and in those days, there were very few people actually doing this. There were people like, you know, Night Timber and Chapel Down who were big and money was starting to come in. But it was a bit of a minority pastime, if you like. So I started relatively small. It started with about 10 acres. And initially, I thought, well, if it was successful, I would grow and grow and grow. And in fact, what we've, we've ended up doing is remaining pretty small. We planted a little bit more, but it's becoming so competitive now particularly the sparkling wine sector, that we're just focusing on our very kind of niche positioning. It's all about being small, handmade, top quality, selling, well, a premium price, I guess. We try to keep the price manageable for most people or affordable, but at the same time, we are aiming very much at the premium market. It is that vintage champagne market that is where we are. We'll talk about the method a bit later because I think you do use the method champagnois, she says, trying we to pull out her best schoolgirl French. <laughs> but first of all, just tell me a bit about the growth of winemaking in England because it does seem to be on a massive growth curve right now. There are a number of things. I mean, you mentioned climate change. I think that is making a difference for sure. And I remember when, when I was training as a, a winemaker, which was back in 2005, they were saying then that the climate in the UK or the south of the UK was comparable to Champagne 20 or 30 years ago. And I think the reason that England was very much a kind of place where people were making wine as a hobby, but it generally wasn't very nice, was because there wasn't enough sunshine. It wasn't warm enough. So people were using a lot of German varieties that were early ripening that didn't necessarily make, you know, the most delicious wines. But there were all kinds of Muller Tergau, Bacchus, there are various other varieties that were planted. But, you know, the idea of growing a Chardonnay that was going to come anywhere near a Burgundy would have been unthinkable. And probably at the moment, I would say still is, but you certainly can grow the varieties the champagne varieties or the main ones, Pinot Noir, Pinot Meunier and Chardonnay in this country to bring them to the ripeness level to make really great sparkling wine. 
The vineyard is named after your great grandfather. It's a fantastic name. I love the alliteration, Herbert Hall. I'd love to hear a bit about him and his life in Marden. What did he do here? Herbert Hall, my great grandfather, he was originally a farm labourer. He lived over in Sussex and he came here in his horse and cart back in, was probably the very end of the 19th century. And he became a tenant on what is now our main vineyard. It's probably about a six acre, six or seven acre site. And he grew vegetables and he had chickens, cabbages and all kinds of things and a bit of fruit. And then once a week he would fill up his car and they would go up to the village and he would sell all his wares door to door. And in fact, my grandfather, who was a little boy at the time, I remember him telling us that they used to load up this cart and Herbert would go to each house and be invited in for a cider and then they'd go to the next house, be another cider and another one. By the end of the day, the cart was empty. He was completely plastered. And my grandfather would have to load him up onto the cart and the horse would make its way back down here to the house where they lived, where we are now, in fact. He was quite a colourful character, wasn't he? He was a colourful character. And in fact, he started to make money with his chickens. And his big breakthrough was he had so many chickens that he kept breeding, breeding, breeding. And he started selling them to P&O, the transatlantic liners. And he made a lot of money doing that at the time. So he then bought his land and then he began to buy more land. So the farm ended up becoming quite a big farm across Marden and another village nearby doing hops. Eventually it was a lot of apples. It was a typical Kentish farm, you know, apples, pears, cherries, plums, and more later hops. It's wonderful that he built the farm and it's remained in your family for three generations. Are your vines then actually growing on Herbert's land? They are, yeah. But I was never really destined to be a farmer. When I was when I was young, when I grew up down here, A, I could never get out of bed in the morning and B, I really <laughs> wanted to get away. I didn't want to be living down here being a farmer. So I left and my brother is a good farmer. He's a little bit older than me, but he took on the farm and he's built it up further and further. So he's kind of managed it through that period. But I went off, I worked first as a journalist in South London. Then I went to university and did English degree. Then I worked again as a journalist, worked in advertising. I then set up, to give you an idea of how old I am, um, <laughs> it was at the beginning of the internet when I was working at this big advertising agency. And I was doing with another guy putting together an internet for the whole you know the global group and while we were doing that we thought wouldn't it be fun to make an online art gallery which we did I knew a load of artists and people and then I started moonlighting from the agency because all these companies wanted art for their walls and they could look on our website to see the images so we'd disappear off and supply the art and eventually I set up a little studio in Deptford working direct with artist studios in in South London and East London so I did that for a few years but then eventually I think it must be about 20 years ago I came back to Kent with my family and when I got back one of the things I really noticed was that the landscape had really started to change so all the hops had gone by then the land that we have as vineyards that was originally hop gardens and I thought you know it'd be really nice just to grow something again here not arable that changes every year but something that's going to be permanent so that really was one of the main motives at the beginning it was this sort of it was almost like an expression of my love for a place that I'd known as a child, but had changed, almost like trying to recapture my own youth in a funny kind of way. So I decided to do that and then went off and trained as a winemaker at Plumpton 
between 2005 and 2007. Then in 2007, planted the vineyards. 2008, built the winery. And then 2009, we took a little crop to try and test out the equipment, do some blending trials. 2009 was a super hot year. So we actually managed by more by luck than anything else to make a really great wine. There are only about a thousand bottles of it. But it was so good, we thought we'll actually take this around to some restaurants. And we got some great reviews for it and, and things started from there. And has it ticked that box, if you like, of bringing all those memories back of growing up here and and having all that nostalgia for you? In a way it has, but the landscape has changed hugely around here. There's been huge development like there has in many parts of the country. And, you know, it was never going to stay the same. I mean, it used to be, you know, full of particularly the apple orchards. I remember the pear orchards, you know, there would be the blossom tour. People would come down on buses to drive around and see all the blossom. And it was really beautiful. So it's changed, but I think my kind of philosophy for winemaking definitely has grown out of that kind of love for this place. So I see what we do, what we make at the end of it as a sort of expression of my feeling about the place, if that makes sense. It all gets a little bit abstract. That's really the prime motive for it. So that even down to the way we make the wine, which we grow really good fruit in this part of the world. So we try and make wine that really expresses that fruit. It's the same technique as champagne, but champagne generally is more known for blending skills and grapes coming from all different vineyards being brought together, different vintages to give consistency. Whereas we just do this year by year, single estate. We never buy in any grapes. It's purely an expression of what happens in this particular place year by year. When you were deciding, Nick, what to do here, what made you think about winemaking? Why was that the what you went for? Probably because I like drinking. <laughs> That's a fair <laughs> but, enough yeah, answer. No, but apart from that, I think, again, it goes back to the thing, you know, we used to do hops and, you know, hops are making beer and, you know, the hops are gone. And I thought, well, actually, I like to drink wine. I think it's possible to do it now with the climate. And I'd read a bit about it. But I also thought, and I think this partly came from my time working in advertising, that it is possible to change people's perception. People often make the mistake of thinking that things are as they are and they don't really change. And certainly at the time, English wine was generally, there were some good wines probably somewhere, but people wouldn't have gone out to buy it. It generally wasn't great. It didn't look great. It wasn't very chic to do it. But I kind of thought, well, look what happened with English food. Everyone used to be really rude about English food. And it went through this huge kind of renaissance where you had these amazing chefs getting fresh stuff and cheesemakers were popping up and charcuterie makers. And and suddenly people started to think about it in a totally different way. And I kind of thought, well, if you could make really good wine and have it really well packaged so it looks nice and show it to people with a bit of confidence say, look, this is the future. It's possible to make great wine and it's English. It looks great. It tastes great. Why would you not want this? And it was possible. But when I started, people really thought I was nuts. I mean, it seemed crazy, but I was sure we could do it. How steep was your learning curve in those early days? Kind of manageable because I, so I did pretty much the whole of the foundation degree in wine production at Plumpton and I focused on sparkling wine. When I very first started here, I'd become quite good friends, or very good friends actually, with a guy called Peter Morgan, who was the head of the winery at Plumpton. So he came over and he was kind of making sure that I didn't poison anybody or, you know, do anything totally disastrous. So there was a bit of hand holding at the beginning, which was really useful. But a lot of it, you know, I was doing on my own. 
Once we got through that first vintage and we took it to places, we sent it out to get some reviews and it went down well, you begin to get a bit more confidence and you begin to be able to sort of see what the wine is, what the grapes are that you've got, what they can be turned into and how you can do it. And So when you opened that very first bottle that you tasted and you said it was a, a good vintage, what are your memories of opening it and taking a first sip of your own wine, Nick? Well, I was relieved, apart from anything, because I actually tasted okay. <laughs> it was a huge relief. And I think also there was, a, I guess, a sense of pride. I mean, one of the things I love, I really love about winemaking, is that you are getting a plant. When they arrive, it's just a little bit of a, it looks like just a little stick with some roots on. You put it in the ground, you look after it, and you take it through this whole process, which is farming, it's all the winemaking, there's a bit of science, there's a bit of art and creativity and using your palace and everything, and then there's all the design and the packaging. You might end up in a really smart restaurant. One of the first listings we got, I don't think we're there anymore, but we got into the Gavroche. And so you're going, actually, this is really extraordinary because it was a stick and now it's a bottle of wine and it's on the Gavroche wine list. And there's something amazing about that transformation, that kind of metamorphosis that I really love. I think that's exciting. And it makes it so much variety in what we do because of that. Take me through the winemaking process because you haven't picked the grapes. You have to pick by hand if you're making sparkly, if you're doing it properly. So they're all picked by hand by variety. We then press the grapes by variety and the juice is then settled and then fermented. And this is the first fermentation because the whole point about the champagne process is a two-part process. Okay, this is the first fermentation. And what you try to do is to make a wine which is fairly low in alcohol, ideally around 10.5%. You will then later in the year blend that for whatever the blend is that you want in your particular cuvee that you're making. And ours is 40% Chardonnay, 30% Pinot Noir, 30% Pinot Meunier for our main, the white, the brute, as we call it. You then filter it, and then in the spring or summer, you get ready for secondary fermentation, the second part of this process. So what we do is we mix up a big mother culture of yeast and sugar. You have to get exactly the right amount of sugar in the mix because if you get too much, the bottles will explode when they start fermenting. But you basically have everything mixed together. That goes through a bottling line with a crown cap on the top of the bottle. It is then left in the bottle and hopefully should start fermenting in the bottle and it always has done so so far we've been okay if it doesn't ferment in the bottle you're really in trouble because you've got still wine when it's meant to be fizzy and it's got lots of sugar and yeast and stuff in it and it's and that's you're in, basically and you're the in process. trouble with exploding bottles and then too, you're in trouble you? with ex- if you put too much sugar and you have exploding bottles exactly <laughs> have you had exploding bottles uh no i haven't had there was an occasion when i was on holiday and this was, was kirsty who's we work together now but she just started and she was hugely irresponsible and she decided to make some elderflower wine in the winery and she bottled it too quickly and she put it in the cellar and a few weeks later there was a big explosion and it all went off. Oh no, that's not that's not great. And you make in small, forgive me if I haven't got the terms right, small batches, small cuvées, is that the well, right cuvée, word? Well, cuvée, we call cuvée is a word that could be used in a different way. You might call it a small release, a small batch. Basically, with a company or winery like ours, we don't want to get bigger now. We're both winemakers. We don't want to be a gift shop and a, a go into hospitality. That's, you can make a lot of money doing that, but it's not what we signed up to do. 
So what we're trying to do now, because our positioning is to be really selective in the vineyard and getting the best grapes from certain sites and they make a different expression of what's growing. So for example, we've got a cuvee, which is just 1000 bottles of Blanc de Blanc coming up very soon, which is all barrel fermented. It's from a particular area of the vineyard. Next year, we've got a Blanc de Noir, which when I say Blanc de Blanc, that means just a, a white wine made from white grapes, you know, Blanc de Blanc. I get that, I get that. And a Blanc de Noir is a white wine, but it's made from black grapes because the colour doesn't come through into the the wine. But that would just be a 500 bottle cuvee and that's done as a tribute to a great friend of mine who sadly died a few years ago, but he helped me with the original branding and the setting up of the whole thing. So it's really all about just focusing on these really specialist niche wines. And you've had some fantastic reviews. I read a quote somewhere from Sotheby's talking about your wine. You sell in places like Fortnum and Mason's. What was that journey like? And what was it like when, for example, Fortnum said, yes, please, we'd like to take some of your wine? It must have been very exciting, I would imagine. It was very exciting. And it was sort of almost too unexpected to get nervous about. So when we very first started, we sent off a bottle to a wine critic called Matthew Jukes. He's very well known and he gets a lot of following. And he gave us some most glowing review for our first wine but he also mentioned that we were growing organically so we then got a call from somebody at Fortnum's actually it was a guy called Tim French who by chance I bumped into the other day so Prince Charles as he was at the time was looking for someone to make an organic English sparkling wine for Highgrove they had read this review and they picked up our name from this review because not many other people were doing this And they came down, there was like a delegation who all arrived at the winery, which they probably thought looked more like an agricultural shed. They did a tasting and we explained what it was all about and they loved the wine. So we started making that for Highgrove and we have been doing it ever since. So that is over 10 years now of doing that. And of course, Prince Charles is is the king now. And he Um, is the king now. So um, a massive supporter of British growers and and farmers. Yeah, indeed. And of course, Camilla is, I don't know if she still is, but she was president of the uh, UKVA, which is the UK Vineyards Association. And I think she grew up in or near Ditchling, which is not only near where Plumpton College is, where they do all the training, they train all the winemakers there. It's the only place you can really go in the UK. But also they had vineyards there as well. And, you know, she was really sportive. She was a big character at the front of this organisation. So she really helped too. Do you know whether the king actually enjoys it himself or is it served at occasions? Do you know what happens to the wine once uh, it heads off to Highgrove? Really, no, but I, I do know that when we first started doing this, the Telegraph wrote an article about it. The journalist did ring up the press office at Highgrove and say, does Prince Charles drink this wine? And they said, yes. So we have to believe what's what they say. But oh, so you haven't had any calls for the coronation yet? No, not yet. No, no, we're still waiting. <laughs> You're still waiting, still waiting e- by the phone. eagerly by the yeah. phone. We've done a lot of talk about your beautiful wine and it's sitting there on ice. I think it would be rude not to taste it. It might only be about 11 this year, but it'd be midday somewhere around the world, won't it? Let's give it a go. Shall we have a little taste? So these labels, a lot of people think they look really smart and clean and everything, but at the time labels weren't great. But these were actually done by friends. He was really a friend of my other friend who who died, who was helping with the branding, Brendan. But this guy was called Jeff. Is called Jeff Halpin. This designer, and he started his career working in the music industry. And some of the first things he did were the Black Sabbath 
album covers. And he kind of created that heavy metal sort of jagged typeface that you get with heavy metal. And we used to sit down, have long lunches with him. And as he moved through his career, he became really quite well known, in, particularly for drinks packaging and also typography. So he came up with this really clean, we want a clean, fresh, smart look. And then in 2011, we were contacted by a wine writer called Jonathan Ray. He was writing for GQ magazine and they wanted to do a piece about how English wine could become chic. So he said, well, I've heard your labels are great. I want to have a look at them. So I, so I showed him the PDF on the computer. So he said, right, we want to use that for our article. But I didn't have the wine in bottle by then. Well, it was in bottle, but it was still fermenting under Crown Cap. And I didn't even have the labels because they were just on my computer. So I went off to the supermarket and I bought a bottle of Carver <laughs> and I steamed the label off and everything else. And I cut just like Blue Peter, I printed them out of my laptop and I cut out the labels and stuck them on. And I took the bottle up to Vogue House and handed it over and they photographed it. And it was a half page of GQ magazine. Half of it was the article saying how English wine could become chic. And the other half was a picture of our bottle. And that was a huge helped us at the beginning because suddenly we went from being totally unknown to being seen as tiny but really sort of chic and leading this kind of creative revolution so that was a big help for us i know you shouldn't judge a book by its cover but i do pick a lot of my wine by the label actually well i think people do yeah that's very appealing so we are this is the 2018 vintage herbert hall brut so it's a white wine it's it's, it's delicious. 30%. Thank you. Thank you. Really delicious. Sorry, 40% Chardonnay, 30% Pinot Noir, 30% Pinot Meunier. And that was a, a blend that we got to um, right at the beginning. We did a lot of blending trials at the very start. I looked at a load of champagnes and I thought, well, which, what, which styles do I like? And I really liked the non-vintage Paul Roger style, which I think has a similar blend to this. And, you know, the wine isn't the same, but it was like a direction that I sort of wanted. It was an influence, if you like. And so that's how we got to this. I haven't this got blend. a great nose, but the fruit. Yeah, can, no, it's all about the fruit, really. And you get life. that sort of white peachy mm. on the nose. I yeah. feel like a wine critic now. It's, it's really, good. really delicious. I'm going to have another sip, actually. Do carry on talking, Nick. Mm. <laughs> I'm enjoying this very much. I'm drinking. <laughs> and this is made in the same kind of way as champagne, isn't it? Champagne, is that? No, you're not even allowed to say that. We call oh, you it can't even say that. We call it traditional method. But it is all the same thing. And there's people endlessly going on about how it was actually an Englishman who invented this thing of trapping the fizz in the bottle and everything. But whether that is correct or not, I don't know. And to be honest, it doesn't really make much difference. But the champagne method or the traditional method or whatever you want to call it is basically this two-stage fermentation. So there are other fizzy wines that are cheaper to make where they just are fermented in tanks that are kept under pressure. So in one go, you can keep all the fizz in there already. Or you can just carbonate wine, which is like making Coca-Cola or something like that. But the reason it's more expensive is because it's a long detailed process it's a two-stage process with lots of little stages within that and you have to get every bit right on the way through we make in total about twenty thousand bottles in a good year we've had some really terrible years with frost and all that kind of stuff but in a good year we should make twenty thousand bottles and we usually out of that we might make say fifteen thousand of this and say five thousand of the rosé or if there are other wines as there are now coming through we just cut back a bit on those two. I mean, I think last year we made just two and a half thousand bottles of the rosé. So it's 
kind of really and what's the difference with the rosé and what makes it rosé that sounds quite a naive question no no not at all there are really a couple of ways of making it one way is like when you press the grapes you leave them on the skin because all the colouring grapes come from the the skin so you you pick up that colour and then you take that all the way through first and second fermentation without doing anything else what we do which is common in champagne and is more manageable and i prefer is to make our base wines to begin with and do our blending then but we also make a pinot noir as a red wine from some of our pinot noir and then we keep that to one side and then prior to secondary fermentation we do some color trials and taste trials we then make an addition of the pinot noir to the, the wine that we already have before secondary fermentation so the red wine is basically joining the party at the beginning of secondary fermentation but it's much easier to manage the color and the flavor profile if you do it that way and that's really the main difference just has more pinot noir but we will taste it in a minute and it makes a big difference to not just the look but it's the the flavor and the aroma of wine what do you like best about the whole season and the whole process where are you at your most happy with all of this nick it's a world away from what you used to do isn't it i'm a journalist and i'm I've yeah, worked with so, advertising people yeah. and I know it's a stressful industry yeah. and life just never stops. But here you're sort of looking out on acres of beautiful vineyards and it, it feels to me as a visitor a much more peaceful, mellow, authentic way of life. I think it is. Yeah, in some ways it is. But also I would say I probably never worked harder than I have to now, which is not quite what I was expecting. <laughs> I can believe but, that actually. You know, there's a it, lot to do. Isn't there's a there? lot to do. There's a lot of different things and you have to learn all the different skills. But I have to say that the time in advertising and journalism made a huge difference to what I thought I would be capable of because I began to understand that you have to get, even though we didn't have a big budget, you have to get the detail right. So things like the colour of this blue, I'm really obsessive about making sure that we follow that through exactly and in the packaging and if we have our parasols up in, in the garden, in the bar, in the summer and things. It's all those little, little tiny details that you bring to bear. It's like a beautiful it duck egg blue, actually, yeah, isn't it? It makes a difference having had that sort of background. But there's definitely a lot more work, but it is profoundly satisfying because Unlike things I used to when I was a journalist, I was doing a lot of the sort of PRE communication stuff, which is you write it, but then it's gone. Then it's on to the next thing. It's just really ideas that you put down on paper or whatever. Whereas this, put your plant in the ground and you come out and you've got a bottle of wine at the end of it. And you think, actually, I did that. I took that from start to finish. And you feel like you've actually made something, which is, I think, hugely satisfying. And what's lovely, and I know is important to you, having read some of your website and your philosophy, wine, it's a social aspect too, isn't it? It brings people together. It's, it inspires conversation and socialising. And it is a very important part of life, isn't it? That is really what I love about it. I think it's really important to make a wine that people enjoy and give some pleasure and want to drink. And it's really the best quality you can possibly make. But that's not the reason for doing it. The reason for doing it is really to make people happy. That gives me huge pleasure to know that people have got a bottle of this wine, they're loving it, they're chatting with their friends and absolutely what we think wine is about. For me, I can see why there are people who will buy 10 different vintages of the same wine and they'll taste them and spit them out and everything. I mean, it's like a quite a sophisticated hobby, I suppose, but that doesn't really interest me. What, what interests me is making the best wine I can and then seeing people go, wow, this is amazing. And it has happened from time to time where people have had the wine set in a restaurant or something 
And they've actually called up and said, we had your wine. We just loved it. I just wanted to say that. And if we're around, we'd love to come and see you. And, and I just think, yeah, that's what it's about. Where can you be found now? If people are listening to the podcast and think, gosh, I'd like to try some Herbert Hall any restaurants that you can yeah, name? I mean, again, or? we don't do. We have been listed in many, many really high-end restaurants. We used to do a huge amount with the Caprice and the original Ivy. But, you know, the, the Ivy is really a chain now. And the Caprice was closed down, so that doesn't happen. But we do places like the Groucho Club and Six Seven Palmal and Brown's Hotel. Actually, there's a really good place in uh, Wandsworth, the Pig's Head, which is really, really popular. That's a little bit more of a – it's not quite so sort of – expensive and and high-end but fantastic food really great place and i think they're going to open one down here but we for retail it's really fortnum selfridges lee and sandman who are brilliant uh wine merchants in london they have i think four or five stores and then we sell it online a little bit and post out to people but it's pretty niche i think the rac club we do i think we supply them and then there are various other places that i'd I really actually don't know where <laughs> As we get to the final questions, maybe we can try the rosé, but it feels a bit decadent opening a second bottle. You really don't well, have to do that. Well, we can always put a crown cap because you ought to see, really? well, if you okay. want to see the colour, it's interesting I'd love to, to see the colour. Is it true that champagne producers from France have seen the benefits of growing in the south of England and have actually bought up land? I know it can't be called champagne because it's, the grapes aren't grown in the champagne region, but are you seeing French producers yeah. come here because of the perfect climate? conditions now and the quality of the soil here yeah absolutely i think two or three who have already there's um i think one in hampshire where i forget which champagne house is but i think the in a way the most exciting one is tassinger have, they bought land fairly near charing down that way and they have a brand called domain evermont which is going to be their exclusively owned by them and that's going to be an English sparkling wine which I think is going to launch maybe this or next year sometime they, they planted about I don't know five or six years ago as you open the rosé you can see all your design that shade of Pretty, shade of pinks absolutely beautiful with the, I don't know what shade you'd call that but with the duck egg blue it looks yeah. beautiful and then the gold on the, yeah. on the label I love the sound yes. too <laughs> But also, How this fun one, doing a podcast I with just, the winemaker. I know can't see this on the podcast, but that's like one of the really small runs, a sort of higher end that we're going to be doing. It's that's the Blanc de Blanc. So that's a, a gold label in a beautiful yeah, and there's just box. thousand bottles of that. So. How do you um, see, Nick, the future of winemaking in the UK? Do you think it's just going to continue to grow, and will English wine just continue to get more popular? Do you think? One hundred percent. It will grow and grow and grow, and already particularly sparkling wine, English sparkling wine, has started to get a reputation around the world. I mean, some countries are more conservative than others. They're less sort of receptive to it. But we've recently started doing some exports. I mean, it's obviously a very small scale with us, but we've been sending out wine to Norway because there are some really, really exciting restaurants in Oslo and they're always looking for interesting, different premium wines. And so that's been really successful. We're going to pop out there and see some of these people. If you need anybody to carry your bag, I've never actually been no, there. No, so you're very welcome. <laughs> come and help you out there. So here's the rosette. What a beautiful colour. And again, for me, it all has to be visual. And yeah, it's it, super in the still rosé yeah. wines, I would never pick anything unless it was this kind of really pale shade yeah, it's that salmon sort of, almost, isn't it? Yeah, it's it is. It's, it's almost that sort of Provence rosé colour, that sort of look. But again, very fruit-driven. 
I've got a very big smile, Nick, because I can't believe how much I'm enjoying this podcast. Last week, I was in an ice bath of one degree for two minutes. And now I'm tasting wine at sort of 11 o'clock in the morning. This is absolutely delicious. Um, And what else is next? Kind of said what's next for Herbert Hall. But what other plans have you got over the next year or two? It's definitely not to get bigger. Continue to make good, but try and make better wine all the time. At the weekends in the summer, we run a little bar in the garden at the winery, but we don't do any food or anything like that. I never want to do that. And and that's become a huge sort of community thing, which I really enjoy. And that's led to a lot of people volunteering for Harvest. And it's sort of built this real sense of friendship and community where people are all getting to know each other who live locally or moved into the village. So that gives me a lot of pleasure. My son is a chef at the River Cafe in London, and he maybe one day would want to come and start doing a food thing at the winery as well. But until that day comes, I don't really have plans to do it ourselves. I think we just stick to the wine. (laughs) And we started off talking about your great-grandfather, Herbert. What do you think he'd make of the vineyard and the beautiful wine that you're producing here? I think he'd love it. I think he'd be banging on the gates of heaven trying to get out again to come and see us. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. And it welcome. really has been a very enjoyable podcast. I wish we could have actually recorded where you make the wine, but it was a little bit echoey, wasn't it? Yeah, and, yeah, um, yeah. So you end up sitting in the kitchen. Yeah, but sitting in the kitchen has been fantastic. And I think I'm going to say goodbye on this so I can finish my glass of sparkling rosé. Cheers, Nick. Cheers. Thank good, you very much for, for speaking to me. You are very welcome. You've been listening to winemaker Nick Hall, producer of fine English sparkling wine. It is very fine, actually. On the land, his great-grandfather, Herbert Hall, farmed at the end of the 19th century. And the wine is, we've found out, enjoyed by King Charles. Don't forget to download and subscribe to our series at convex.podbean.com or search The Convex Conversation on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple and Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to yours. 